Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. So, Reed, I'm a little bit apprehensive about this episode and what we're going to be talking about over the next month or so because we are going to address General Brown's vision for his tenure as the the new chief of staff of the Air Force called Accelerate Change or Lose. And that apprehension is because this document is amazing and there's so much in it. I just, I mean, I'm a lowly captain and I feel that, yes, while I have a great amount of experience and an understanding of how the Air Force operates and what it means to be an officer, but there's so much here and I feel unqualified to talk about it. That's interesting because we both seem pretty eager and excited to address these things. And so for you to share your vulnerability with us, Colin, is it's the key to a good connection. So good job with your Brene Brown. You're definitely bringing <laughs> that out for us today. So I honestly think that CGOs and NCOs are the heart of the envelope of who he's talking to. When you read this document, and we'll make this plug multiple times, if you haven't, stop now and go read it and then come back and join us. We would love for you to join us today, but if you don't have the context of what this paper is, you're going to be a little lost. All right, so plug over. I think CGOs and NCOs are the heart of the envelope of who he's targeting this paper to because we are the folks that are in we. Oh, dear. I saw a major the other day, and it was like everything in me I, to do to not salute that person. Anyway, I'm still struggling. <laughs> so, And just for context, CGO, anybody who... Uh, isn't up to speed. Reed, you recently promoted to major, right? Yeah. And it's been all of six weeks and I'm still, it still is not real. I'm maybe someday I'll figure it out. I think CGOs and NCOs are who he's talking to. They are the folks who are going to affect the vast majority of this change. So I don't know that you're just a quote lowly captain. I think this is who he's talking to. Yeah. That's interesting because the way that it's written it is in a language that I feel like I am able to understand that you know, it doesn't use a bunch of acronyms and policy type words that only make sense in the five-sided puzzle palace known as the Pentagon, yeah. right? But even so, because there's so much here, there's so much breadth and depth to it. I know that uh, I have something to offer here, but I also know that I don't know everything. Yeah, totally fair. And I do want to add in here, I really like what you're saying that the, the the CGOs and the NCOs being the people that he's talking to, because you and I were talking about change management theory and how General Brown could use the, the typical change management approach where it's just the executive at the top of the chain putting out a vision and expecting that it's going to 
trickle down and the change is going to happen at each echelon down the way. And that the last person, the last group of people to get this information is going to be the, the airmen at the quote bottom of the totem pole. And, and that includes CGOs and, and NCOs, right? But we think that the, the far more effective way for this to happen is to bring the CGOs and NCOs and those bottom of the totem pole airmen into the, the conversation and taking a triangular approach to change management in that there is the executive at the top who is providing the vision and communicating the change that needs to happen and there are two other major players in that relationship with the middle managers, the wing commanders, the those who are responsible for writing and implementing the policy on the one side. And then on the other side is the more human element, those who actually have to implement the change one individual at a time, one airman at a time. And that is the NCOs and the CGOs and those junior airmen. And all three have to be communicating to each other. General Brown has to be able to speak directly to those at the base level, bottom of the totem pole, saying to them, this is what I want you to do, but I also need to hear from you about the things you need in order to make this change possible. There has to be that opportunity for feedback both directions. Yeah, and I think this letter is exactly that. He is trying to create a culture in the entire 500,000 plus United States Air Force in order to establish the vision and make the change that needs to happen. And if this is the step one, I'm buying. This is a good first step. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. So how about we stop talking around the document, but actually talk about the document itself. Uh, again, making the plug that uh, if you haven't read it yet, you should stop this episode now. Go to the show notes. We've linked the PDF there. You can access it. Go read it. And then come back and join us and be part of this conversation because just like General Brown and just what we were just saying, we want you to provide your feedback as well. We want you to be part of the conversation as well. And that can happen in the Heritage Room, through social media, through our email account. We want to hear from you, get your take on General Brown's Accelerate Change or Lose vision as we discuss this over the next month or so. Okay. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. Great paper, right? Yes. It's an excellent paper. Yeah, it is an excellent paper. And I want to talk about my first impression of this document when it came out in August of 2020. When I started reading this, I hadn't thought at that point that, you and I were going to talk about it. But I wanted so badly for the rest of our Air Force to catch the vision that General Brown was talking about and not fight against it. Because I had seen this play out before. There would be a new chief of staff or a new wing commander or pick your position of leadership within the Air Force and they would have a vision and they would start communicating saying, these are the changes that are coming. I need you to get on board and make these things happen. And then inevitably there would be that squadron commander or that senior NCO or even the junior airman at, at the base level who would say, but really, I, I don't know that this is actually going to happen. And so I'm going to sit on my haunches and I'm going to wait to see if this is really going to play out. 
we can't have that. If this is going to take place, just like we were discussing a little bit ago, CGOs, NCOs, airmen, the middle management, senior leaders, everybody across the Air Force has to take ownership of this at the individual level to make it be successful. My first impression was I fully expected we'd be doing this series. Oh, really? Okay. Because there was, I did, yeah. So that's interesting that when you read it, you weren't sure about that because as soon as I read it, I knew just the previous chief of staff's memo to his wing commanders, I'm like this, we need to talk about this and we're going to. There's so much truth here. There's just so much truth. The other first impression that I was left with, it's very sobering. This is not unicorns and rainbows, Colin. There is no big, happy, smiling sun rotating at the end of every paragraph. Like This is sobering stuff, but it gives me equal amounts of pride and hope to see our senior leaders looking at the problem and saying, this is not okay. Too often I feel like everything we hear from above is fingers in the ears. Nah, everything's fine. <laughs> I don't want to hear your bad things or the meme of the dog sitting in the burning bar. This is fine. I feel like that's what I see and hear a lot from the top. So to have someone look around and say, no, this is not okay, gives me equal amounts of pride and hope for the future. So I'm, I'm with you. I think we really need to understand this and take it to heart. But yeah, I knew we'd be doing this series. Now, that's a really good point that you're making that General Brown is being willing to call the baby ugly, as it were. Because we talk all the time about the importance of assessing self and being self-aware of the things that are good and the things that are bad, your strengths and weaknesses, the opportunities for improvement. And General Brown is doing that for the whole Air Force, which is really good. Yes. And not even the least bit intimidating or challenging at all, I'm sure. There's only 500,000 of us spread across every time zone with billions of dollars in infrastructure and investment and nuclear weapons. I mean, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. That's a very large, ugly baby. <laughs> yes, it's a lot, but I'd, I'd love that he is not backing down from this. Yeah. So Colin, I wanted to start actually as we address the paper with the title. And this start may seem... Start at the beginning. That's a very good place start to start. Start at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yes, again, a chance to break out into song that we will pass. Okay. But the title, Accelerate Change or Lose. I want our audience to note there are no commas in that phrase. So accelerate change, those two words go together. Yeah, so we don't have accelerate, change, or lose. It's not three options here, it's two. Yes, there are two choices. We either must accelerate change or we will lose. And I think that is a really key thing. I've seen some people in other forums put commas in there. And if you add commas, it becomes a list, right? Of variable options or an order that no, we have two choices. And that will become really clear as we go through the document. He knows that we all get that we have to change, but we're just not changing fast enough. And he breaks that down right now. He says there, we have a unique but limited window of opportunity to change. So we've got to change and we've got to do it now. We have to change faster. But what are the things that we need to change, Reed? I mean, when you talk about the depth and breadth of, of the Air Force, all 500,000 of us spread across every time zone, change what? I mean, 
there, there have to be some specifics of things that we need to address in order to meet his vision here. General Brown doesn't call out in the document a specific list of the things that have to change, but there are some ideas, things that we are already aware of, things that are changing that just need to change faster. And some of those possibilities are we know about our aging in, uh, infrastructure and fleet of aircraft. The average age of buildings, of facilities in the Air Force is at least 50 years. And the same can also be said of our aircraft. I mean, the B-52, as awesome as it is, was not originally designed to operate for 100 years, which it will do. Which is so crazy, because if you think about it, we were barely starting to fly 100 years ago. Right. And we are going to have an aircraft that's flying for 100 years. Like, just can we wrap our heads around that? It's just mind-blowing that, yes, that's where we are. We're in a place where our bomber aircraft are going to be active in the inventory for 100 years. That's just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, and we need to change that. It's not that... Quickly. <laughs> yes, thank you. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the B-52 for today, it, but General Brown is talking about tomorrow, that we have to change faster so that we can be ready for tomorrow. That's the point. It's not that we're struggling today. It's that we see what's coming. And if we don't change the way that we are taking care of our infrastructure and upgrading our, our aircraft, but also adjusting you know, some of the more fuzzy details, not so much about the equipment, but like just the way we do business, the way that we acquire those things, you know, our acquisitions process, our policy around budgets, the way that we promote and evaluate our airmen, the way that we select leaders, or even just the way that we operate on the day-to-day, -day, our operations tempo, all of these things have to change, and, and they are changing. There has been some progress made, even in you know, just last few years, while you and I have been, been serving on active duty. The problem is that we're not changing fast enough. That's the issue. Absolutely. How long have we been hearing rumors and having a push from above to get a new officer performance report? Seriously. It's been almost like five years or something that they say, it's coming, but where is it? Yeah. And, and that's what he's talking about. And something, Colin, you and I discussed before we recorded is how essential speed is, especially to an airman. When you start talking about you know, fighter aircraft and maneuvering in a dogfight in order to win, speed is life. And you bleed energy, you bleed speed to your detriment and death. And that's, I think it's a good analogy to think about. Like we are in a dogfight right now and we are bleeding energy too quickly and we have got to get that speed back or we're going to lose. So we've talked about some of the things that need to change, but what are the risks, Colin? What are the things that General Brown outlines as the risks? Because leadership and, and these kinds of decisions are always an opportunity cost balance with risk. So what is the risk that he describes? Yeah, because he's saying accelerate, change, or lose. I mean, that's the second part of the title. That's the second part of his proposition here is that this needs to happen. These changes need to take place or we're going to lose. And one of the very first things that he calls out that we will lose is 
our assurance that we can respond and maintain uncontested dominance over the airspace in response to any sort of attack on the United States and its interests elsewhere around the globe. Yeah. So in doing some research for this, to try and put this into context, I stumbled across an Apple production called Greyhound starring Tom Hanks, World War II shoot 'em up movie. It's about the U.S. Navy destroyer accompanying merchant marine. So these are the, the ships that would get supplies and troops from mainland USA over to the theater in Europe, make that crossing. And it was a really interesting movie. I really enjoyed it. Some good leadership lessons in there. And I started doing a little bit of research about the Merchant Marine, that experience. And I learned some very fascinating things. So the chance of dying in World War II, if you were in the Merchant Marines, was 4%. The chance of dying if you were a United States Marine was 3.7%. And of all of our armed forces, the Marines suffered the highest rates of attrition across all the branches. So let's think about that. You had a higher chance of dying as a civilian on a vessel transporting a Jeep from New York to London than you would if you were a Marine fighting in the war. So that's the kind of risk we're talking about here. Right now, Colin, when you and I deployed, we got on an aircraft and we landed at our destination. And there was a higher chance of us dying on the way to the airport in our own car than there was of us getting to the battlefield. And that's the certainty he's talking about going away, that we can't assure that we will have that kind of dominance, especially overseas. So the way this happens is we put our airmen on a contract aircraft or a C-17 or C-130, and they just go to where the fighting is happening or where they need to be closer to where the fighting is happening. And there's never a second thought about how that's going to happen short of just like the logistics of it. Never once are you ever concerned that an enemy aircraft is going to meet you up there and, and shoot you down or that enemies on the ground are going to be able to knock you out of the air. That's just not the way that we think. And having to think that way greatly changes the calculus of how and where you think you are going to start operating in order to carry out the Air Force mission. And we're just not ready to do that. We don't even know how to do that. It's been so long since we've, well, since World War II, since we had to operate with that kind of a mentality. Yeah, it's a whole different thing that we just... We don't even think about if you need an airman to get to you wherever you are you ask for and receive an airman you don't send two in the hopes that you'll get one because you're going to get one it's a mindset that we just we don't even have and losing that certainty like you said totally changes the calculus on everything we do but something else that we need to address here is that we have to also move away from the mentality that the war is going to happen over there, right? You know, he says that future warfare will not remain far from our shores, just like the enemy will have the ability to 
keep us from traveling to where the fighting is happening, they will also have the ability to bring the fight to us. You see, one of the really wonderful things about living in the United States over the last 200 plus years is that we are surrounded on our east and our west by very large bodies of water. And then on our north and our south, we're surrounded by allies or at worst, weak enemies who don't have a lot by way of military capability and resources. And so the United States is in a very secure location geographically. But the future of warfare on land, on sea, in the air, but also in space and cyberspace is not guaranteed to take place over there. It very well could, and the argument can be made that it's happening right now over here, that we are in the battle space right now. Yeah, absolutely. The tyranny of distance has been one of our biggest blessings as a nation. And he outlines that it's not going to be that way. And I am definitely in the camp of it is already happening over here. There is a battlefield for the hearts and minds of the American people. And that is the terrain being fought over. And it is happening right now in your living room, on your smartphone, on your computer. And we are actively engaged in that space as a Department of Defense. And we need more people to recognize that is happening. And I think that's part of the change he's, he knows we need to affect right now. Yeah, it's not a declared war. Congress has not passed a resolution of war against a particular enemy. We, we are not calling up reservists and guardsmen to, quote, go to war in the traditional sense. But absolutely, in the information ops domain, for sure, and uh, what's happening on our cyberspace networks. And you could also make the argument in space that there is a battle for that terrain that is raging right now. So I think it's really important that we recognize that air dominance and superiority, the tyranny of distance, these things that we've enjoyed uh, for the last many decades are no longer guaranteed to us. He says in the document, air dominance is not an American birthright. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because I have been in teams that have built combat plans to go and affect combat operations and I've put them into place and watched them succeed. Not one time did I ever plan to lose an asset or a capability due to enemy action. Not one time. Now I've done that in exercises, I've done that in practice, but I've never done it for real. We knew assets might drop out for maintenance or for weather, but never due to enemy action. That is how dominant we are right now in the air, but we are not going to be. This air dominance is not an American birthright. And like you said, that's a mindset. That's a belief that we have. Everyone that we know has always operated in an environment where we've had complete and utter air dominance. And we need to recognize that will no longer be the case. And I think the point here, again, is that there are people who are recognizing that. It is starting to change. The problem is it's not changing fast enough. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. Like I said, I've done it in practice. And some of those assessments have been pretty sobering to watch what happens when we lose assets. It's not fun to think about. 
I think that leads us right into another thing that he talked about us losing, and that's the high-end fight. So I think it's valuable to describe that because those of us in the profession of arms, we know what this feels like, but I think it's important to define it. So high-end means fighting with assets of equal capability. So that means a high-end fight is two nations with an integrated air and missile defense system with fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft bringing all the toys to the yard, right? And really throwing down with all the good stuff, okay? A low-end fight is the stuff that any Tom, Dick, or Harry country can put piece together. We're talking small arms. We're talking maybe some RPGs and IEDs. And now I don't want to sound dismissive of those things, but think about this like car shopping. You have your high-end brands, your Ferraris, your McLarens, your Lamborghinis, and then you have your lower-end brands that everybody has. It works, right? It'll do the job, but it's not going to do the job like a Ferrari is going to do the job, right? That's when we're talking about a high versus a low-end fight. We haven't really been challenged in the high-end space because we've had the best, the fastest, the goodest stuff. And he's saying if we do not accelerate change, we are going to risk losing the high-end fight, something that we are not accustomed to. And I think that goes right along with our air dominance as, an, as a birthright and the fact that the fight might happen somewhere that we would rather choose otherwise. Yeah. I mean, we've been in a low-end fight and have become quite proficient in a low-end fight over the last 20 years. We're really good at suppressing enemy forces on the ground who have no ability of shooting back at us in the air because the the global war on terror has been just that. So that's the business that the majority of our airmen know is how to carry out that type of war. We don't have the experience of carrying out a high-end fight and being victorious there. We just don't know how to do that. I mean, we, ha- we know about it in theory. We've talked about it. We exercise to it, but the practical experience is not there. Yeah. And, and we got to get there. We got to get there quickly. Next thing he talks about is that we risk losing quality airmen. And I can't agree with this more, but I, wanted, I want your thoughts before I just get on my soapbox and just rail. <laughs> I just, I'm going to rage on this. Okay. I'll give a few thoughts, but I, I want to get out of the way fairly quickly. So my thought on this is that we are not drafted into the Air Force. None of us are forced to join. Our enlisted airmen and officers have a choice on whether or not they join to begin with and whether they continue serving after that. We have options. The private business world despite COVID and any other economic pressures, wants people just like our airmen and our officers, those innovative thinkers and and people of character, which is what we require for them to become part of the Air Force. Private business wants those same qualities and they're willing to pay for it. And so we've seen this actually play out over the last few years. A perfect case in point with this is the pilot shortage that we've been dealing with is that because of how the Air Force is treating its pilots and because of the incentives that are available, pilots are voting with their feet and they're leaving the Air Force or they're choosing to not join in the first place. And I personally have lived this. There was a time where I fell out of favor with the Air Force. I became disenchanted with what was going on and I left. I separated from active duty and went and did a different thing. Now I came back. But I am the exception. 
And my thought is that this type of problem, what we're seeing with the pilots and with me personally, I think that's only going to get worse as the private business world continues to provide incentives and different working options and things that look really good to our airmen. So if we don't accelerate change the way the Air Force recruits and retains talent, I think that airmen are going to punch out or never join to begin with. Yeah, I totally agree. This may be me reading between the lines, something that isn't there. But to me, this is General Brown crawling out every single leader in the Air Force and placing the blame squarely at them and saying, if you do not change, we are going to lose airmen. To me, this is a failure of leadership. And I have seen this. I have The smartest people I have ever run into in the Air Force are no longer a part of it. And that hurts. It hurts. This is true and it is painful. And it, it hurts me that we can't figure this out. And like you said, Colin, I think we know, I think we know the root causes and I think we're moving in the right direction, but we're not moving fast enough. And we can't afford to let these brilliant, talented, patriotic, hardworking people who see a better opportunity. Yes, there are always going to be better opportunities out there, depending on your circumstance and situation. I, I can't second guess that, but we are not doing enough. And to me, this is just Reed's take on it, right? This is me thinking he is calling out every single leader in the Air Force and saying, you have got to change or we're going to keep losing airmen. This is the, when we don't give attention to an airman, when we schedule a meeting, we're 20 minutes late, and then the meeting goes really poorly because we clearly have somewhere else to be. It's, all the, it's the culmination of all the little things that we fail at all the time that we don't pay as much heed to because nobody's dying. But all those things culminate into an airman's perspective, their perception of how much we care and how serious we are and how good we are at what we do. And when they look at the grass on the other side, if it's greener, we have failed. We failed. That's my two cents. Or it may be that they want to stay on this side, but they don't want to do it in uniform. And so they'll get out and become a contractor and get paid three times as much to do the exact same job that doesn't come with a lot of the bureaucratic nonsense that goes along with wearing the uniform. That happens as well. And it doesn't matter how we lose them and to where. The problem is that we are losing them. We are losing talent or we can't re recruit it in the first place. And that is the issue. That is part of the issue. The other part of the issue, again, is that we recognize the change, but we're not changing fast enough. We need to do it better. We need to do it faster. So, Colin, welcome to paragraph one of Accelerate Change or Lose. Paragraph one, and we could go on and on for hours on just paragraph one. So, the next four points we're going to touch on briefly because we want to give you a taste of what we're going to see over the next few weeks. So, we're going to go more in depth on General Brown's for main points. First, uncontested Air Force dominance is not assured. Second, good enough today will fail tomorrow. Third, we must collaborate within and throughout to succeed. And fourth, empowered airmen can solve any problem. Colin, why don't you start with uncontested Air Force dominance is not assured. Just a little bit. What are some things that he pointed out that we have got to change in this idea? Yeah, so like we, what we were saying earlier is that air dominance is not an American birthright. And so we want to get into a little bit more detail on that, talking about 
how ever since Desert Storm, we have essentially controlled airspace everywhere. Certainly over our own skies, uh, you know, over our own country, we have been able to keep everybody out anytime that we want to. But also when we go to operate over there, like we were saying, it's very easy for us to get there and then to operate in that airspace as well. But that is not always going to be the case. We know right now that our enemies have plans in place and are working on their own ways of penetrating our airspace and making it to our country, either through airspace itself, through the development of modern aircraft, or finding ways through the space and the cyber domain uh, to weaken our defenses so that they can attack us. And we need to be aware of that and accelerate our ability to protect our homeland so that it can remain a sanctuary as it has been for the 200 years of our nation. Yeah. So one thing he mentioned, and this is, again, just a quick overview, but I think it's worth pointing out. He said we need to be prepared to have attrition like we did in World War II. Colin, how many bomber aircraft are in the United States Air Force inventory? I think it's around 130, but don't quote me on that. Okay. It's 136. Woo! So I, I was close. Good guess. Nice work. During World War II, most historians note we lost 140 aircraft a day. That's insane. And it's something that we are not prepared for. And that's the kind of change that we have to get adjusted to. So that's the first point. Uncontested U.S. Air Force dominance is not assured. Lots of good stuff. I'm looking forward to bringing that discussion to our audience. Uh, the second one, good enough today will fail tomorrow. We talked a little bit about this at the front. Our stuff, which is great. It's great stuff. It was designed and built off of requirements from the 60s and 70s. That was a long time ago. I hate to point it out, but we're closer to 2050 than we are to 1990. <laughs> and <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, but we are. And so to be building and managing and running equipment built off of requirements from the 1960s and 70s, we can't keep doing this good enough for today. Yeah, and another interesting thing about that time and place you know, in the, the 1960s and 70s, if you think about what was going on then, this was Vietnam, this was the space race. Government at that time, the military at that time, was the driving force be behind much of the technological innovation and and that's where you would get like the term like military grade because the the military had the best of everything the government had the best of everything but that's not the case anymore oh no so <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm just have you ever tried to sign a pdf on a government computer oh my gosh what an experience right the case in point here is that the government is still using pdfs <laughs> right exactly <laughs> Yeah, so I know I'm not joking, Colin. I got a webcam yesterday. I got a webcam and a headset with a mic. And we all felt like it was Christmas and we all called each other. We all felt high tech. <laughs> and I'm looking at a 15-year-old iMac had an integrated webcam. And I got a webcam yesterday. And it was like a big deal. We no longer have the coolest, best stuff. Good enough today will fail tomorrow. And... We've been talking about our, our equipment, but 
it goes beyond that. And, and this leads to Jenna Brown's next point that it's not just uh, our stuff. It's the way that we operate, that we need to change the, the way that we are structured and our relationships both within and without uh, the Air Force in order to continue to succeed. Uh, and he says we must collaborate from within and throughout to succeed. We cannot do this alone. We have to not only recognize the change that needs to happen, believe in it, but we also need to accelerate our ability to communicate the, the need for that change and get other people, other stakeholders to get on board. And this is both within the Air Force, but also our allies and then the, the American people itself. Yeah, there's so much in this that he is just speaking to my soul. I mean, let's just pick one acquisition process, for example, how we need to collaborate within and throughout to succeed. The F-35 has components made in all 50 states. And as a result, every single congressman and woman and senator will vote to keep that aircraft alive. We need the capability. It's a fantastic aircraft. I'm excited to see it coming in. But that's one example of our inefficient acquisitions process. So we have to get on the same page so that we don't continue these internal impediments to success. And I think a lot of hard decisions are coming in order for us to make that happen. Yeah, that's going to be a good conversation. I'm looking forward to that one. And then the one that I'm most excited about, and I think this is where we have the most to offer, is his last point that empowered airmen can solve any problem that it's not just about the stuff. It's not just about the way that we're organized. It's not just about the enemy that we are facing, that we need to accelerate the change with respect to our airmen. Just what we were saying earlier, we will lose them unless we can accelerate the change of how we take care of our people. Yeah. And he starts with it starts with recruiting in a session. So yeah, I am super excited to spend some time on this because we get it wrong from the beginning in a lot of ways. And you and I have felt that for a while. This is our opportunity to highlight some of those things and really say, what should it be? If we have to change these things, what should it look like? And we have a lot of ideas, not just you and me, but we, the Air Force, have a lot of ideas of what it should be. And those changes are coming. They're in process. But again, the emphasis here is not that the, we're not changing, is that we're not changing fast enough. We need to be faster. We are the Air Force. We live on speed. If we don't do it faster, we're not going to get there. We will lose. Yeah. So this is, again, an introduction. We just wanted to outline where we're going. I'm very excited about not only the discussion, but the culture that General Brown's trying to establish. And I'm on board. I'm, on, I'm buying. Colin, any you know, closing thoughts before we wrap up this week? No, I, you, you said it. That You have to read the paper. You have to understand and catch the vision of what General Brown is trying to share with us in order for the change to take place, in order to accelerate the change that needs to take place. Every single one of us owns responsibility for this. It's not going to happen at General Brown's level. It's going to happen with me, with you, everybody that is listening to this podcast, and those who are not listening to this podcast, they need this information too. So just like Mahatma Gandhi, be the change in the world that you want to see.
Yeah, because around you, your unit is trying to change something. I guarantee it. And if you don't see it, find your DO, find your commander and say, sir, ma'am, what is it that we're trying to fix? What is it we're trying to get better? What are we trying to change? And then we need you to fall in line and dig and pull with everyone else in sync so we can get this done and moving quicker. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good place to leave it, Reed. Again, we invite you to participate with us in the Heritage Room. Engage with us on social media through our email address, airforceofficerpodcast.com, and do the same for your sphere of influence, the people around you. Encourage them to get on board with this. And that concludes this week's episode of Commission Ed. Commission Ed.